1: You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Welcome. It's a lovely afternoon and there could be no better place to be than right here on the banks of the river with such a guest as Com Toy Bean. And my name is Michael McGurr, and it's great to have met you just now, Colm. And to begin chatting, I think a good place to start, and perhaps uh, we wouldn't have expected this beforehand, is we were talking just before about the death of Seamus Heaney and what a figure he has been in your life and the life of Ireland. And I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are today with Seamus Heaney having passed away just yesterday. Um, the, I think for anyone my age, um, he was born in 1939,
0: I was born in 1955. This first book came out in 1966. But, but yet, um, I remember when I had my first summer job, I had money and I went to Dublin, and I had in my head that I had to get a book called Death of a Naturalist. Somehow or other, the news had come down to Enniscorthy, where I was from, that this book was, was something I would need. And of course, the description of life on a farm. I wasn't from a farm, but, I, but th- th- there was a sort of familiarity about the sky over the poems, the land the poems wrote about, and the sort of idiom of the poems. Um, and when I was 18, as a student, we invited him to the university, and I got to know him then. So I, I really, I'd really known him for 40 years, and he's been a huge influence on the entire society because we were let down by so many people in Ireland who were in positions of leadership. For example, on on the side of the church, on the side of the politicians, that he and people like him, but but he was really primary among these people who insisted on a sort of seriousness without a solemnity. That he, he he was a commanding figure on a platform when he read his poems. He believed in the word, and he believed in getting the word right. But afterwards, or even as, an inter- as a way of introducing himself, he would shrug. He would be self-deprecating. He would, you know, want to really go home afterwards. But, but that he, he, was, he was an interesting mixture of someone who took his task very seriously and did not take himself very seriously. And in the end, he really had a sort of commanding position in the society. He made very few public statements on large questions. He stuck to the poetry. He cared deeply. You had a feeling that for him the life of the mind really mattered. The silent place where you read and study. And the lifetime spent with a tradition. And you see, the business of a tradition on an island like Ireland is really important. He was insisting that our tradition included Wordsworth. Included Gerard Manley Hopkins. Included C.S. Eliot, anyone we wanted to include, that poetry knows no boundaries, it flows free like air does. And that even though you were Irish, and even though he was a Catholic from Northern Ireland, he, in the years of the Troubles, when there was great pressure on somebody like him, um, because he came from a place where some of his neighbours were hunger strikers, for example, to make a statement, to do something, to say something. He insisted on creating a sort of alternate space which, 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 which was almost of greater value because the noise being made by the bombers on one side and indeed the inflammatory politicians on the other was so infuriating, was so um, filled with racial cliche and horror that the idea of someone operating sonorously the idea of someone operating where every phrase was being weighed with care. And sometimes he could write about memory or, or write about love or write about place. And just by doing that properly, he was offering a sort of an example to the society. And um, so he's, I mean, you really, it's very hard to say that there is in Ireland a profound sadness because it usually isn't true when people say that there is a, you know, it's usually about someone that there isn't a profound sadness about when you say there's a profound <laughs> sadness. <laughs> well, in, in the case of Seamus Heaney, there is. I mean, there is a sadness in the society, in, in, in everywhere in Ireland that he's gone, and that there won't be any more of those books because those books, a book like *North* from 1974, um, a book that. that um, um, Even the most recent book, Human Chain, where he began to write in this sort of shivering way about getting frail and getting old. Those books mattered enormously to people and were sort of monuments built in our country by this man. And the idea that there won't be any more such books is is really very hard to deal with. And the idea that this great life has been extinguished, this exemplary life has been extinguished, is really very
1: difficult. That's a wonderful tribute, Colm. Thank you. And uh, and mirrors my experience of listening to Seamus Heaney absolutely that you couldn't listen to him without feeling somehow fed and uplifted and that you just wanted to stay with what he just said but he'd already moved on to something again which you wanted to remember as well um, and uh, I suppose it's a testimony to the fact that you are part of a great literary heritage in Ireland that goes way back and you certainly have been a major contributor to it. Growing up, were you uh, aware of this? Were you a great reader as a child? Um, I suppose the presence
0: of somebody like W.B. Yeats, especially those early, po- those early poems that were so just beautifully made, even something, I mean, I, I, as a teenager, I mean, I, I, maybe I was unusual, but I don't think so. Finding a poem like when you are old and grey and full of sleep and nodding by the fire, take down this book and slowly read of the soft look your eyes had once, and of their shadows deep, and, uh, you know, that, or just uh, lines like, the trees are in their autumn beauty, the woodland paths are dry, under the October twilight, the water mirrors a still sky, and then the public poems such as Easter 1916, you know, I've met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces from canter or desk among grey, 18th century houses. And we had a record at home. And we, we, we obviously we had a very dull lives because we used to put it on. And it was, it was an Irish actor called Michal MacLeomore reading the poems of W.B. Yeats. And we would put it on for pleasure. And just, and as a family, or even when our parents were out, I said, sort well, of listen to it. <laughs> but that, I suppose the idea that somebody like Yeats had recreated Ireland in his own likeness or had allowed uh, the Irish sky into his systems uh, and that the poems were beautiful and, and, and easy. And then discovering later on that, the, that, that really after about 1920 the poems became sort of gnarled and difficult and worthy of immense attention. That, that, that he was a much more complex figure than anybody thought. So certainly someone like Yeats repaid all that experience and almost the same with Joyce, where you could give Dubliners to a 14-year-old. You know, you could give the portrait of, of, of the artist to a 16-year-old. And then there was the business of Ulysses, not to speak of Finnegan's Wake. You know, that, so that those two people... And the third, I suppose, um, came to me via an actor called Jack McGarren, who came to do a one-man show, in a town even smaller than our town, about 20 miles away, called Gorey. And he, he was a friend, he was a close friend of Samuel Beckett's. And he did a one-man show based on the work of Samuel Beckett. And I was 16. i had never seen anything like it. I mean, we just couldn't make out this out. I mean, he was sucking stones one minute. He wanted to make sure that he sucked every stone that was in one pocket. Put them into the other pocket, and sucking <laughs> stones. And I had no idea whether he was, he was... I mean, this couldn't be real. And then he said, in the end, he didn't care about sucking stones at all. <laughs> so, well, which is it? You know, and, um, <laughs> uh, and it meant that, you know, that those plays then, Waiting for Godot, Endgame, became part of nature in the place, mm. so that, I suppose, those three figures did matter. And, a- and I suppose the fact that they had lived out of the country mattered, because it gave, it gave a sense of glamour about them. Beckett in Paris, Joyce in Trieste, Yeats in London, the sense that they somehow or other had their eye on the larger world, while having their, the other eye on the world of their childhood, or the world of the country that they were from.
1: It is indeed a wonderful, a very rich heritage, and, as you were speaking, I just I have never been at a festival or anywhere else and heard an Australian writer quote with such affection poetry written by an Australian poet dead and uh, I think this is something wonderful then and I think it does come into your work too,
0: because they I have seen this. By the way, Vincent Buckley spent a year in Ireland, in, and he came to my university all the time. And he would always—I mean, he would in front of him always get big, long AD Hope poems. That uh, he would recite well, them. I knew,
1: I knew Vincent. Actually, I lived with Vincent for a wow. short mm-hmm. time. In, in, and um, he was perhaps an exception to oh, every okay, rule yeah. that ever that ever there was. Let's turn our attention to. Um, if we can, to your most recent book, The Testament of Mary, which is a short novel based on the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and your own telling of it. It presents her, in my reading, as a fairly lonely and frightened person towards the end of her time, or as an older woman after she has seen her son crucified. And she's sort of hunted, I suppose, by people who want to get at her to make sure that the version of events of the life of her son is the one that they want it to be. It, am I t- taking it in the, in the right that's way? That's right, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm just wondering, first of all, where in your imagination this uh, particular telling of events came from? Um, I, in the year 2000, I had to give a course
0: in the New School in New York. I call it the New School. They call it the New School. And um, it's quite competitive if you're teaching there because no one might come to your course. So, you know, there, there could be <laughs> ten, 10 people teaching and all of them will want to go to someone who's much more fashionable than you are. and You'd be left sitting there, you know? So I had to really decide what to do about this. So I gave a title to my course. I called it Relentlessness. <laughs> and I thought I would get, I'd get a, I would get a certain sort of, what they call, student um, <laughs> who would come, you know, who would be intense who would, you know, really care about something or other. <laughs> and, and, and so I did. I mean, they were absolutely... They were much more relentless than I was. And... Um, so I thought we should start at the top, really. And we should look at Medea, Electra and Antigone in various translations. At the staccato language of the translations. At the heightened tone of these women in pain. And we had a tremendous time. And... <laughs> I, had, um, I actually... Um, I shouldn't tell you this story, but I met someone who knew a lot about cocaine, and he said to me, "You know, it's not good cocaine. It's really not good for you. You can't go on taking it." And I said, "All right." He said, "But I found ex- th- something that has exactly the same effect: a double espresso and bubbly Coca-Cola poured into it, um, and just bring it up to the top and just drink it." So I used to, before the class, I used to drink. I honestly, I, I'm not making this up. I used to drink. A double espresso and a, and a bubbly coca-cola. I was on fire, in fact. The <laughs> and um, there, were, there were protests about me by the, by the t- staff, because the staff, it was seven o'clock in the evening to ten, and I, I wouldn't go at ten. <laughs> and the porters wanted the class cleared. But it just stayed with me, the idea, of the power of, of, of these particular presences in the theatre, and any time I got an opportunity to see an actress working with him. For example, I saw Zoe Wanamaker in an an Electra in New York. I saw Fiona Shaw doing um, an extraordinary Medea in Dublin. And, um, you know, I saw infinite numbers of Antigones. And I just thought, this is actually, if if you could work with this, it's really interesting. And, And a number of people, Sylvia Plath, for example, I think took some of that tone for her poems. There's an American poet, Louise Glick, who has done some of the same things. But just taking a tone that takes no prisoners from those sources and working with it. And it was when in Dublin, I was trying to think one night, and no one asked me for my opinion on this, what Fiona Shaw should do next as an actress. Because she's not someone who can easily work with, say, comedy Mm. or or, or very easy parts. She needs the hard, tough parts. And um, I I had seen her um, here, I had seen her in um, Adelaide doing The Wasteland. And um, anyway, I'd seen a good amount of her work, and I just said, well, there's obviously one part left for her. And someone said, what? And I said, well, obviously the Virgin Mary. She could do an amazing Virgin Mary. And and what I meant, of course, was that if you gave the Virgin Mary a voice that was strung out, staccato, um, traumatized, angry, fiercely intelligent, ready to take on the world. and, um, And someone said to me, well, why don't you do it? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And someone foolishly commissioned me to write this first for the theater. And so I did. And, um, but, but the, the, what I had in mind was that the voice would be, um, the voice of someone with nothing to lose anymore, where it's all over. So she's not the meek mother and she's not the grieving mother. She's the angry woman who, who, has, who has, whose tone is relentless and whose, days and nights are filled with the memory of what happened and the fact that almost she alone is the only one willing to face the enormous cruelty of what occurred.
1: And the voice is beautifully realised. It's It is. It is uh, it's one of those books that is spellbinding. I guess the question I'd like to ask is that uh, in your work, and you've written so many terrific essays, You've written about growing up and the presence of images such as the image of Our Lady of Lourdes in your childhood home. And also, uh, once upon a time, you did a pilgrimage to Lourdes, although by that time you had become uh, a little skeptical of it. But this world of piety was a world that was very familiar to you. And yet, the character of Mary in this book is dramatically different from the plaster image of Our Lady of Lourdes, and I'm just wondering how you found your way to this particular understanding of what the Virgin Mary may have been like. Yeah, um, up to a certain year at
0: home, um, until I think we just protested too much, um, we, we said the rosary in the evening, and you would be out playing and someone would shout, come in, the rosary! <laughs> and... Um, so the prayers of the rosary were, as we know, one Our Father, ten Hail Marys, and then glory be to the Father. And that, that was done five times. But then my mother had all these extra prayers, which were known generally as the trimmings of the rosary. And um, perhaps it was the relief that the rosary was soon going to be over. But also, but it wasn't just that. It was that these prayers seemed to me... I wouldn't have said beautiful at the time. I wouldn't have known what that was. But there was something satisfying about them, the tone of them, compared, say, to the Hail Mary, which was, I think we repeated too many times for it it, it to be anything for us, but the Salve Regina, the Hail Holy Queen, to thee do we send up our sighs. Mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. And there was an Irish playwright, Tom Murphy, who's a friend of mine, who put those lines into one of his plays and they sang. I mean they were electrifying for the audience, where this old woman starts to say, uh, t- Mourning and Weeping in this yes, in this valley of tears, yes, and um, then also the memorare, you know, the remember a most gracious Virgin Mary that never was it known that anyone who employed diet, th- etc. But the other thing that happened was that I started to go to Italy. And there's nothing, I mean, despite the advert, there's nothing much to do in Italy, really, you know, <laughs> um, other than go to around the galleries. And you go around the galleries, and what you end up looking at are permanent, you know, image after image after image of the Virgin, of the, of the crucifixion, of various saints and all that. So I just, in, in Venice, and I started to go to Venice as often as I could. There were cheap, cheap, cheap flights to Venice, you know, go to Venice, and I would just go to the Frari. And I would spend a lot of time in the friary looking at Titian's Assumption. Uh, And the Assumption is a tremendous thing. It's one of the best things the Catholic Church has ever thought of. that that (laughs) That Our Lady was assumed body and soul up into heaven. And if you're a petition, the painter, I mean, you loved the robes and the redness, the angels, the sky, and, you know, below the world, above the sky, and above the sky, even still, there was God waiting for her to arrive, and you could really have fun with the work. And then one Sunday, wandering up the street from there, I ventured in to a space I hadn't seen before, because it wasn't a church, called the Scuola de San Rocco. And in in, in a very large back room, an an enormously long painting by Tintoretto of the crucifixion is filled with chaos. It's filled with untidiness. It's filled... Okay, in the middle, there's a figure being crucified. There are grieving figures. There's a sense of light coming from the cross. But actually, that's just the middle. People are shoeing horses. People are eating. People are laughing. People are doing every single other thing And the distance between those two images struck me as a fascinating distance between the the idealization of a story, the telling of a story so that it lifts us all out of ourselves, and the telling of a story as it was, as it might have been remembered. And almost the rivalry between Titian and Tintoretto in Venice was, was, was sort of working out those two versions of narrative. So, of course, it struck me that this was exactly what had happened with the New Testament, that four men set about writing down that story and putting shape on it so that it would matter in the world and have influence. And one woman on the other side was silent. But she was the one who had suffered most. She was the one who had seen it, and she was the one who had wanted it not to happen. No matter what, no matter who she was. I I don't care what anyone else thinks. There must have been moments when she did not want it to occur. E- even if someone else might say, well, of course she, she accepted it. Well, she may have, but there was, must have been moments when she did not. And I started to work with those two ideas of figures working at the idealization of a story which was going to change the Western world. And a single person alone in a house, traumatized, um, with the experience of what she saw absolutely unresolved within her try, for once urgently speaking and so I set about working
1: This happens marvellously and towards the end of the book the, the voice of, of Mary says the world is a place of silence and these uh, visitors who are coming to her are the people who want to I suppose they are the people who are starting to make the biblical account and they want the version of events. You know, you know, he was the son of God. You know, you, you, know, he died on the cross to save everybody. And she says starkly, oh, he died on the cross to save everybody. Well, it wasn't worth it because her experience of that is so, you know, she's just gutted by it, isn't it? Yeah. And, and the realisation of the the end of the book is, is, is terrific in the... Uh, The gap, I suppose, between these two people who are going to nail down an account which will be full of meaning and it will be, you know, significance, and her left, as you say, in the house on her own, silent, broken. Yeah. But um, when uh, um,
0: it's been worked twice now on the stage, once by the Irish actress Marie Mullen and the other time by Fiona Shaw, that when they come to that line, you know, they've been building up to it for an hour at that point, and they sort of have the audience with them, that, you know, it doesn't just come out of the blue, and you realise she would not have said it at the beginning, but that she's actually become so angry with them. It's just, when you say that he redeemed the world, I will say to you. And, of course, the audience knows whatever she's going to say now. It was not, it was, it was not, it was. I mean, she, she's pulling the words out of herself. It was not worth it. And then once more she says it, she says it twice, it was not worth it. And the honest goes, actually, that's maybe what you would say. You know, the, the actresses managed to get those lines and make them, uh, make them credible, you know. Uh, uh, but um, it, 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 I didn't begin with those lines. I mean, I, I was working through her voice and seeing where it would take me. And obviously, I could change things. I mean, it wasn't as though I was being divinely inspired. You know, that would been my book and their book. is they're, they're divinely inspired, and I'm not. So it meant that I could decide to change things. But at the same time, I was exploring something that I didn't know.
1: Mm. Um, I do hope people will, uh, you know, go and... Uh and work with or read this book, and have this experience, which for me was quite a significant experience. but may we turn for a moment from that mother to your mother, because in your writings you've you've written a lot about mothers and uh, written also about your own mother as somebody who came fairly late to reading, and as a result of which was an enormously free reader who discovered and enjoyed things which were well beyond what you might expect. She became a great uh, enthusiast for Saul Bellow, didn't she? <laughs> Saul Bellow. Who's a Jewish-American. And, and, but uh, you've got a great line in something you've written, which is that your mother became the reader that every writer uh, would love to have, or something along those lines.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, my mother left school at 14 um, because she had to go and work to, because um, her father had died. And this caused her immense disappointment, that she couldn't go on. But it also meant that for her, books became vital. And doing it herself, and and, and, finding everything out herself became vital. And I think part of the reason she married my father was that he was literate, and he knew Latin, and he he was educated. And that for for her, more than anything else, education was, I mean, when I was being the laziest teenager anyone had ever met, she just couldn't understand me, how you wouldn't take all the chances that came your way. But she found um, Wallace Stevens on her own. No one gave her Wallace Stevens or told her he was important. And she began to love those poems. And she, she, you know, she eventually got the collective poems. She found, actually, I, I often thought it of, as a way of annoying me, she found <laughs> Saul Bellow and said to me, he's so smart, so snappy, you know, none of that slow writing. Slow writing. <laughs> and uh, and um, so that she became a big Saul Bellow fan, but then didn't become a big Philip Roth fan. She made all sorts of funny distinctions. And, um, you, you know, you never knew what she was just, that she was, um, you, know, you know, when she died, I found a, Doris Lessing's love again beside her bed. You know, she was 79. And um, she was reading Love Again by Doris Lessing. And so that, that, that idea of a provincial place where, uh, where books become important, and she probably wasn't alone, there were other people who were reading too, but that, that idea that in a provincial place, books can take on a, a really great significance because there isn't a theatre, you know, the, the, and there isn't really a, a, probably a, even a big community of readers. So her relationship to the local library was a very close one.
1: I love the way you present her as somebody who was, as you've just been saying, completely unimpressed by the opinion of writers, and they had to impress her, you know, and they had to uh, make their own way into her affections, and, well, the impression I got was that she was pretty astute on the whole.
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean she was wrong about some things. <laughs> <laughs> well, but yes, yes, she, she was a very intelligent person. And, but not a great fan, I gather, of Henry James. No. I mean, well, I mean, some people don't like Henry James. They just find those sentences too long. And they find all those posh people too tedious. And they don't care about what happens to them. And um, it's one of the very funny things uh, that I think, when I was talking about Seamus Heaney earlier, that aged 18, me, with a summer job in Wexford, um, 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 what's it called, motor taxation office before computers, where there was a file for every car in County Wexford, and I was the student and my job was to make sure they were all in order in case any of them had been lost. With dust pouring out (laughs) on top of me, each file for each car. Um, And um, in the evening, for no reason, it wasn't on any university course or anything else, I was reading Portrait of a Lady. And it took me over, you know. It had nothing whatsoever to do with me. I I, I had never been outside Ireland. I had never met anyone like anyone in this book. the world they were were describing couldn't have been further away from me. And, um, And yet, the sentences, the tone, the characters, and the particular plight of Isabel Archer, perhaps that Isabel Archer, because she was found by her aunt in Albany, which is a provincial place, and was a provincial place, maybe I longed to be found by my aunt, who was a tremendously rich person, would bring me to England or Italy. That's what I wanted to. It didn't happen. But I'll, it may have been something like that. But whatever it was, um, by the time I came back to university for my second year, I thought this book was golden and wonderful. And then discovered to my consternation that no one else liked it. <laughs> and that people just thought it was you know, highfalutin and sort of ridiculously ornate. And, but, but that I then went and read everything by Henry James over the next few years. And he himself particularly the way in which he suppressed himself. In the way that, say, James Joyce did not suppress himself in his fiction, or that George Eliot did not. In other words, that they're present in their fiction. George Eliot's opinions, perhaps, or mm-hmm. how educated she was, and how serious she was about progress and reform, and Joyce's um, personality and his life being just fed into the books. With James you, you, you're talking about something else entirely, a sort of artistry, sort of way of staying out of the book. That, that in other words, a way of suggesting to the reader that the page I'm working with is not a mirror, it is blank, and I will fill it as though there is no me here, you will not get to know me, you will get to know my characters. And I became very interested in that
1: idea. That's a, that's a wonderful uh, description of the experience of reading Henry James, and most people, I've probably tweaked to the fact that, of course, um, I'm wanting to discuss one of your most celebrated books, The Master, which is uh, about Henry James at a particular time of his life, but branches into all parts of his life. But before going there, I might say, um, that's a lovely description of your discovery of that book as a young person. I have always found exquisite pleasure in finding books to love that nobody else likes. It's sort of, it's great to be in a fan club of one, you know and um, so I I, I do share that experience. But you must have lived with Henry James for a long time to have wrestled him into the exquisite shape that we find in the master. Can you tell us a little bit about how that book came into being?
0: Yeah, um, I was asked by the London Review of Books to review a book um, which was called, the, the London Review of Books was always trying to get me to write about being gay. I was always saying, look, I'm gay. I'm only gay on Tuesday. And then, look, I'm really busy at the moment. So I'm too busy to be gay. (laughs) And um, is is it okay if I'm not gay this season? Is there anyone else who, sure, there are other people who are gay. You know, and I, I just, like, let this cup pass. You know, not about being gay, but about being the sort of, like, spokesman which, you know, anyone else gay would just say, you're the least person entitled to speak for our community, you fool. (laughs) And therefore, I just wasn't going to do that. But the problem was that the London Review of Books would send me a book that was too interesting to say, I don't want to do this. So they sent me, for example, you know, um, books about James Baldwin or about Thomas Mann or about, you know, figures like that. But in the middle of the whole thing, this book arrived called A History of Gay Sexuality. And in the middle of the book, he took on the subject of Henry James. Now, what was happening in the United States especially, where really all all evil comes, was um, that a group of intellectuals and academics had decided that Henry James's homosexuality was a form of neurosis, which made its way into his books neurotically and that all his books are a way of concealing his homosexuality or revealing it in tiny little hints here and there, this idea had never occurred to me. I I just thought, I'm sure it's not true. And and because, of course, I was writing novels myself and I loved the idea of the autonomous author deciding what you will put into your book, that your books are not forms of psychoanalysis, self-concealment, self-definition. That there are actually uh, that, there's a, that there are levels of artistry involved. I'm not sure about this anymore, but I did think this then. And um, so I set about deciding to refute these people and just tell them that they were talking absolute nonsense. The main um, the main culprit was a woman called Eve Sedgwick, and her book was called Epistemology of the Closet. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a really actually it's a really good book. And the problem <laughs> the problem is this book has been hugely influential so the only time now you find henry james on courses in america is under the closet you know some (laughs) academic will give a course called the closet and all these poor students will read henry james as a figure in the closet and as though that was all he was. I mean, he was in the closet, actually. Yes, it is true. But he was many other places, too, um, like, such as in his study or at dinner parties or in his own mind. And, I mean, there were other things happening, too. He was maybe only gay on Tuesday afternoons, you know. <laughs> and um, anyway, um, in order to do this, I had to find out uh, what happened. So there is, um, uh, is, it four vo- is it five volumes? Anyway, it's a large number of volumes of a biography by Leonie Dell about Henry James. Uh, I think it's four, but it's really, really long. And um, so I set about reading the bits I needed. Then I was writing a novel in, it was in Yaddo, which is the artist's residence in upstate New York. And I wanted a book that would bore me badly so that it wouldn't interfere with my own sort of work. So I realized that this biography in full was there. So I took it back to my room and I started to read it. Of course, I stopped writing my own book because it was so interesting. It, 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 it's slightly too Freudian in some of its systems, but nonetheless, it tells the full story of, of Henry James as an artist and, as his, uh, and of his work. And um, I thought this was absolutely, I mean, I thought it was the most fascinating story about secrecy, that while other, other artists, for example, back to James Joyce or um, or even Virginia Woolf or George Eliot, that their lives were almost open books. James remains ambiguous. Everything you say about him, the opposite is true. You know, he loved his family. He really did love his family. But he got away from them as soon as he could and he stayed away from them. He really um, was neither American nor English at the end of his life. He he used to uh, describe, or his brother said, that he was a native of the James family. He um, was probably homosexual, uh, um, but he loved women. He loved going to dinner parties. He went out every night in London, but he loved being solitary. He was was rich. His father, his grandfather, had been the second richest man in New York State. But he spent his life worrying about money and trying to make more money. Everything you could say about him, the opposite would also turn out to be true. And there's a huge mystery about him. He's not known. And I decided that in in, in a novel, you wouldn't attempt to know him, but merely dramatize his days or things that happened and leave as much ambiguous as possible, leave as much space for the reader's imagination as possible. So not attempt to define him as a biographer might and um, simply create images and find scenes that matter to him and that also in certain ways mattered to me. One of them being, for example, that he was the second son in a family of five. I'm the second son in a family of five, with an older brother who was really athletic, while you were a wimp around the house. Here too, hello. And so, you know, um, oh, bald, he was bald, I'm bald. Um, And um, that, so that, I mean, they might seem like nothing much until you start working with them and you realise that that idea where you're placed in a family, actually does matter. And and, and it was something I felt I could dramatize. And also, by the time I was writing it, I'd become pretty studious myself. I'd really stopped you know, talibanning around and drinking so much and going to parties. I, I liked being at home working. Well, so did he, t- to some extent. And so, I, I worked out of myself, to some extent. I worked out of him, to some extent. But I left the space empty of interpretation. Or, or of an interpretation that
1: anyone could sum up easily which is a which is a tribute to the way he went about things too in, as you said earlier but i think uh, reading the master for me is it was a reminder of what fiction can do and biography can't and it's all the things you've just described it is a most unintrusive book that it is very respectful of its subject but it doesn't actually sort of take him over or invade him so it does leave the reader with a fair bit of guesswork, especially in the area of his sexuality, where there are a number of scenes there's sort of a number of almost relationships in in the book and um, including one night where he has to share a bed with a, a bloke and the awkwardness of that it is the most uh, it is a most fantastic scene where he 's literally on the edge of his bed trying to cope with with the experience of being himself, I suppose. Has that never happened to you, no? Well, I'm not, not not that I would say here. <laughs> In the presence of my wife.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I think that, I mean, the 20th century uh, for novelists has been a time where this... this very big battle has been fought, and I mean, just looking, for example, at the history of the publication of Ulysses, and the real difficulty in England and America of just getting the book out into people's hands, because because um, censors thought that parts of it were obscene. So that that battle to describe the body, to describe sex as as graphically as you wanted, was a big battle fought and won. So by the time I come along, it's been won. And uh, and I do have vivid and, um, I hope, realistic descriptions of sex, say, between men, in, say, a novel like The Story of the Night. When I came to this one, I realized that since the battle is won, I wonder if there's something more powerful than sex. That's called almost sex. (laughs) And that if Henry James keeps having almost sex, it might mean more than if I give him this torrid love affair where there's a lot of words being used that I won't use in a mixed audience on a stage, you know, from a stage. And there's a scene in the bed, is that, that's there, but the scene that I, I really, you know, where he there's a young man staying in the house and he really, really, really fancies him. He would really like to, you know. And then the only thing I do with it is that, um, and it's never happened to me, is that the floorboards creak and the other guy is clearly undressing in a room nearby. And he can begin to imagine—he must be taking off his shirt now. That—that that must be what that, you know, shoes—and the idea of the other man undressing. But that's all that's going to happen. That's all the sex you're getting. And the same with the scene in the bed. It—it it, it is fantastic. Yeah. Yes. But uh, but uh, but the thing, But also the scene in the bed is with Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. And of course it did amuse me because he ended up being a Supreme Court judge. <laughs> and I just thought, and an iconic figure in American jurisprudence. Mm. So I just thought, actually mischief, you know, of putting Henry James. And he did share a bed, by the way. I mean, I mean, I'm not making this up. I mean, he did say to him in a letter, there will be only one bed. And then he, in an extraordinary sentence, he said, he was on self-conscious in certain ways. He said, I don't mind if you don't, as the woman said when the puppy dog licked her face. Well, I mean, hello, you know I mean? I mean I just...
1: Yes. And that's in a letter. I, yes. didn't, I, didn't, I didn't write that. Calm, um, and we will leave some time for uh, the audience to ask questions, but I would like to uh, talk for a moment about Brooklyn, partly because there will be uh, younger people here, I'm sure, who will be studying Brooklyn at school, where it's going to be a Year 12 text. And it's a book that... Um, it's just the most wonderful Uh, I can't quite uh, put the experience of reading it into words if people know that book it is about a young woman from a place not unlike the one in which you grew up who goes to America, finds love comes back home and is caught between two loves and with that is the whole question not just of who to love but of where to belong and how to create your identity and it's very understated beautifully balanced could you tell us a little bit about uh, where this book came from, in, uh, in your experience or um, your imagination? The, I, was reading, I was reading from the
0: book um, in, um, in New York, and, and I was signing books afterwards, and um, a woman said to me, you know, I think that's my mother. And I said, oh, you know, did your mother come to America? She said, no, 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 I don't mean that it's like that. I mean, I think it's literally, is my mother. And, and I obviously you've got to be very careful with this. (laughs) So I said, um, what was your mother's name? And she said the name, and I said, oh, that was your mother. And your grandmother came to our house, um, and I remember her coming, and I was 12, and she came in, and she talked for the whole evening. And when she'd gone, somebody said, or at least I think this is what happened, but at some point or other, someone said, you know, that woman's daughter went to America and came back, and she didn't tell them that she got married. She took a ring off, you know, on the boat back across the Atlantic. Because, of course, if she was married... And my mother told the story because she just loved the idea that the guy in America was so crazy about her, he knew if she went home, she might not come back. So he convinced her to marry him. But then when she arrived home, she couldn't tell them because that meant she was going back forever. And um, it just stayed in my mind. And I, and I had it in a short story I would written, as just a tiny episode where the woman calls to the house and tells the story and, you know, the little boy is listening and all that. What happened then was that um, I went to Texas and I went there for 14 weeks and it was a... Look, I have nothing to complain about, but it was a big mistake, the 14 weeks. <laughs> it, it's, Austin is very far from the sea. I've never been far from the sea before in my life. And I couldn't work out... Like, you were driving on the wrong side of the road and. Everything was, you know, but anyway, I started to wake up in the morning with homesickness. I wanted to go home. Things I didn't even like. Irish bread, Irish newspapers, Irish radio. I I sort of started, I I would really miss them. And I started to mark the days and at the end of it, I'd be going home. And I knew where home was suddenly. And um, when I came home, I was looking at that story again because I thought it needed more work. And I remember exactly where I was and I was down where I'm from and it was at night and I was on my own and I realised that little paragraph, actually, I'm going to do that. and I'm going to tell her story because that's what matters to me at the moment, the idea of leaving, coming back, what those feelings are like. And obviously, you know, no one wants to read a novel about an Irish novelist going to Austin and teaching for two days a week in a university <laughs> and having a nice house to live in and students and you know, being privileged in all sorts of ways and feeling sorry for himself to boot. You know, no one needs that book. You know. And therefore, I found in her a way of writing some of that. And a way of also, because these were years when members, older members of the family were dying, you know, where my aunts, my mother's sisters and all of that world was slowly fading. So it was a world of people who had thrived in the 1950s, who had worn summer dresses to dances, you know, and there were photographs of them. And I was brought up by them and their voices were in my mind of what they would, you know, I had two aunts who played golf, which in the town was not actually a posh thing to do because you were. Anyway, there was a reason for that. that You're automatically a member of a golf club if you worked in a certain office. And so I was trying to reconstruct something that was disappearing on me, that was going, which were their lives. And it so easily could have been my two aunts. So that one of their sons even thinks that the older woman is his mother. So she was just like that. But but then the the story um, I told, I didn't know that it was known within the family where it occurred but it was. And um, th- I have to say that the daughter was very nice about it. She showed me photographs of her mother and her aunt who played golf. And they've kept in touch over the years. And, um, but I, when I was telling that story, I had no idea that anyone else knew it except within our family as a story about people in the town. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so that's how the story came. It's- and I, there's one more thing that I was also, um, Teaching for me makes a difference. I I think I'm the only person who actually learns anything, because I'm I'm so nervous about it and worried that I do so much work that I end up knowing loads. The students end up being bewildered. I think. But um, so I was teaching Jane Austen, and I was getting Austen in Austen. Yeah, teaching Jane Austen uh, in a number of places, and of course Fanny Price in Mansfield Park that idea of a sort of submerged consciousness, someone who notices everything, who feels deeply, um, but who doesn't assert herself, Mm. who has no sense of uh, the effect she's having on a room, except that perhaps she's happier to be in, in a corner of the room or in the shadows of the room, but that people trust her in some way or other and come to like her. So I was using... Um, material really from Jane Austen.
1: And that describes Iris, as the character in Brooklyn very well. She is a beautiful character. There's a lot for me in that book about the nature of community as well because it is the community she's part of in Ireland which I suppose creates the springboard for her to go to America. But it's also the community which holds her captive in a way, isn't it? And makes her... Um, both provides the springboard and also the prison in, in which to some extent that, that she has to contend with. Yeah, it's a portrait of the town as I remember it and, and, and,
0: and some of it would be quite accurate. I mean, a lot of people think that they know who the shopkeeper
1: is. <laughs> this shopkeeper is tremendous. She really is, um, a, uh, you're thinking of Miss Kelly. Mm-hmm. Yes, a very... Um, uh, was she a
0: true character? I had a letter from a woman who said, you know, that was my mother as well. I mean, I'm not making this up. I, <laughs> I could show you the letter. <laughs> and, and there was an element of that all right. She said, you know, my mother had a shop like that, and she was like that with her customers. And, uh, she said she, and, and, and it serves her right what you did to her in your book. I said, oh, my God.
1: <laughs> come I'm just going to ask one more thing, if I could just find a, um, a, uh, a page... Uh, here um, and then give others a chance this is uh, in an essay when you're talking about space and space is terribly important to you Uh, and you're describing a house and you said this house was the space where I learned to talk to walk to read to write I used it in my novel The Heather Blazing and the House of Eamon's Childhood as the House of Eamon's Childhood it is also in the Blackwater Lightship as the place of Helen and Declan's Childhood It is the house where the novel I'm writing now takes place. It comes in dreams, it comes in imaginings. Sacred space once it was ordinary. I'm just wondering if you'd like to, uh, there's a beautiful paragraph, but would you like to tell us about those spaces? Well, I suppose I got
0: some ideas from, I I don't know if anyone's read this book, um, it's David Malouf's book about a house in Brisbane. Called, is it called 82 Edmondson Edmunds, Street? 12 Edmonton. Street. 12, 12 Edmondson 12, yeah. 12, 12 Street. Where he just takes the house as the subject of a memoir. Mm. And the people come slowly into the rooms. But, but he does the rooms so well. Mm. And, and I was intrigued by it. And, and I realized that that idea of being brought up in a small house and everything happening in spaces, that you keep using over and over because it's hard enough to imagine a character. But imagining a space for me would be almost impossible that I would always, maybe out of laziness, out of fear, go back to a house I knew, to one of my aunt's houses, to my parents, to to the house we were brought up in, and use that house. Or flats I've had, apartments I've had that I've lived in. I I would always just use those doors, those shadows, those windows. And, um, and so, it, I mean, it's an odd thing to do that sort of... You end up using it over and over and over where the light switch was, what door creaked, what sound was made, what... Did the house face east so that the light came in in the morning to the front of the house? And so if you got up really early, you would see an extraordinary sunlight. You know, that those sort of things, once you start using them, have an extraordinary anchor, I mean, emotional anchor, with them. That you're more likely to be truthful. I mean, truthful within fiction about emotions, about memories, about inventions. If you're using something that's real and that matters enormously to you emotionally, and it's almost lost, or that certainly you're not likely to go back there as a three-year-old and start crawling around it again, that won't come again. So therefore those, yeah, those spaces um, have extraordinary power and, um, uh, um, and, and they're unlikely to be replaced by other ones at this point.
1: Thank you. Now there's microphones around, aren't there? Yes, and if anybody would like to ask a question, please feel free and uh, I might uh, uh, play chairman here and nominate people, but just wait for the microphone to come to you if you wouldn't mind. Would anybody like to ask something? There's one just down down here. Thank you so much. Colm, I wonder would you like to make a connection or a distinction between Mary and those women in your stories, mothers and sons, who seemed not to understand their sons?
0: Yes, in a number of stories. um, There's there's especially a story called A Priest in the Family in Mothers and Sons, where I really had to think very carefully about how I would draw the portrait of a woman in Ireland now who's almost 80. And the first thing you want to do with a woman who's almost 80 is make her frail. Give her a fireside. Give her a domestic space. Give her her memories. Give her perhaps a failing memory. And I thought... Don't try this on us. You know, in other words, all I would have to do is just that often when you're working, you need to go to the very opposite of where you were to get somewhere. What if she has her own car? What if she's still driving? What if she plays bridge once a week? What if she, um, uh, you know, um, remembers everything? What if she's very powerful and intelligent? Would that not be a more interesting story then if you then try and break her? with with, uh, something happening in her family, how would she respond to it? So I suppose I became interested in the idea of moving away from Mother Ireland as a sweet, son-loving, I mean S-O-N loving, you know, (laughs) God-fearing mother who spent her time with her rosary beads and if a priest came into the house, she would bless herself. Someone who didn't do that for a moment. And um, someone who knew, who was learning how to do, how to do the internet. Someone who you know, was always videoing TV programs, you know, or recording. You know, so that, yes, in, those book, in, in that book, Mothers and Sons, the, the sons are often pale, strange figures who are deeply unsure of their place in the world. And the mothers have much more power mm-hmm. and know exactly who they are or what they're for. And then the drama, so it's a a question of almost turning the story round from a sort of a patriarchal story where you you deliver images of the meek and mild and you just change who's meek and mild and see where that would take you dramatically. I mean, I'm not doing this to change the world. I'm doing this because uh, the drama of that might be more powerful or have more resonance. So, so, yes, I was, I, I was certainly working with that. I should say I've written one more mother book, uh, uh, you know, which, is, which is finished just now, and I suppose it'll be out next year, unless I get found out in some way, uh, between now and then. I think I'm finished then. I don't think I'll come back to the subject. I think I've found, uh, I hope, something new to write about, and that's um, so all over. But, uh, God, I've had a long run at it. <laughs> Thank you.
1: <laughs> Anybody else, please? Over here on the side, there's a microphone coming down to you, madam. Um, Colm, one of the um, most powerful elements of the Testament of Mary for me was the story of Lazarus. And I was raised as a Catholic, as, as you were, but I don't think I had ever, ever realised that he was actually buried under the ground. And the way you used it in the story, I, I found quite shocking, much more shocking than the crucifixion, and. I just wonder um, what sort of significance you see. I mean, I see him very much as a lost soul. So what sort of significance you attach to that element of that story?
0: Well, you're absolutely right that in in John's Gospel, he's not buried under the ground. He's actually, um, there's a stone, you know, he's put into a space. But um, when I was writing the book, I didn't intend to deal very much with the miracles because I was very uneasy about, for example, making fun of them. You know, water into wine, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, walking on water. They, they were just I, just, I just was too, the novel is a secular space. It doesn't lend itself, it's, it, it's very good on things like money, greed, jealousy, legacy. But it's not good on miracles. You know, in other words, it's, it really doesn't work much in a novel. If suddenly you say, God came at that moment and lifted her into heaven, you know. Yeah, well, get on with your story you know, like, <laughs> where, where did she get the soup from that she had later because she had no money earlier on in your book you know, so, so that therefore I was uneasy about the miracles and then I came to Lazarus and I realised I, I realised only by working in other words I would go back and add another paragraph, another paragraph another paragraph and found that it was giving me a sort of satisfaction retelling this story because of all the miracles in the New Testament this one The one where he brings someone back from the dead. In other words, someone was now in the world. This is dangerous stuff because someone is now in the world who has the knowledge, who knows what it was like, who knows what happens after death. And if anyone wants to know, they just have to ask him. And of course, what I wanted to do do then was make him into the sort of saddest soul there was in the world, to give him a sort of like fierce melancholy. So that everyone was afraid to ask him because whatever he was exuding suggested that he had seen something that we didn't want to know about. And this unsettled everybody deeply. So I, so I worked with that, but I didn't intend to work with it. And I, and I think that one of the things I learned in writing the book was that this story that's in the New Testament, especially in John's Gospel, is very, very powerful. That it, that it, that it has elements in it that, that, that I now understand why they have had such sway in the world um, over the last 2,000 years. Because every time I tried to not tell one of them, or evade part of it, it it would come as a story that fascinated me to tell. But certainly the Lazarus one, um, I think, is probably the most powerful part of the book, the one that I I found most unsettling for me, and that I did most work on in the end, cutting and adding and just making sure that it was, it was all right.
1: Thank you. Anyone? Yeah, there's I, someone right at the back. Yes, right at the back. Thank you. Just in regard to the testament of Mary, did your Mary believe him? In the end, I just, I wasn't sure, and it was a question that stayed with me. Did she believe in him and in them that he was what they said?
0: No. No, she didn't. You see, you see, it's possible that she's on her way there and that she may, in the aftermath, in the afterglow, in the aftermath of the book, find some way through the story. But for her, it only happened to somebody she knew, that the idea that um, he was the son of God, that God sent him to redeem the world. I mean, she says, the world, you mean all of it. He redeemed the world. And, and they're beginning to use this language, this heightened tongue of redemption. She only saw blood. She saw cruelty. She saw suffering. So, so that, no, I mean, I mean, that's the problem she has in a way that all around her, including people who are close to her, including Martha and Mary, M- M- Mary Magdalene, including, including her friend Miriam, who's an invention. All of these people are, are coming to the story and believing in it, saying, no, this is a new dawn for the world. And she's saying, yes, I know there's a new dawn for the world, but would it be okay if you didn't crucify him then? And they're, and they're all of them saying, no, this is what must come to pass. And she's saying, but if it must, if, if God is involved in this, could God not rescue him tomorrow morning because I don't want him to be crucified. And so, no, no, the problem is that she doesn't. And so the question I I, suppose I was asking sort of dramatically was, What if she didn't, what if anyone in her position, seeing the blood, seeing the cruelty, hoping things were gonna be all right and then they weren't, traumatized. In the years afterwards, the trauma never left her. It filled her so deeply that it was the only thing she had was the trauma and the possibility of softly moving over into their space. Just, just, Just didn't come her way. And that, that struck me as, I, I wasn't interested in whether this was plausible or not, that struck me as a very dramatic possibility that I thought I could work with. But I think, in just trying to answer your question honestly, the answer is no, no.
1: I'm afraid, Calm, we've reached the end of the time that we have, but you've given us an absolute tour de force this afternoon, uh, sharing so much about the process of writing and what has gone into a very remarkable career. And so, uh, thank you for all the all the pleasures and experiences you've given us as readers, and thank you for this afternoon. And could you show that appreciation? Please? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.